Welcome to Stories of Recovery, a Mar Recovery Resources production from Mar Addiction Treatment Centers. I'm Matt Shebb. Tad was well known in the Atlanta community as a real estate developer. Then he made the news when he was arrested for a DUI. In treatment, he learned that his business success didn't necessarily translate into success in recovery. In fact, he found out that counterintuitively, he needed to accept his weakness if he wanted to stay sober. By participating in community life at Mar and diving into 12-step recovery, he discovered a way of life where he was able not only to stay away from alcohol, but to find peace of mind like he had never had before. We start our conversation as Tad tells me about the crisis that brought him into Mar. The crisis uh, that brought me in was a DUI. Um, But the DUI was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, I started drinking when I was 15. And and I was cursed with a very high tolerance. Um, So very often, for instance, if I was drinking with the older guys, it started with my baseball team. If I was drinking with the older guys... um, my tolerance was so high that I, I, I might wind up being the one that drove home even though I didn't have a driver's license because I was the one that still had my wits about me. And it became a source of pride to me that I could drink more than everybody else. So I did. Um, and, of course, college, et cetera. So I drank, I drank for 49 years. And for 30 of those, it was... A progression, but it was social drinking. I wasn't drinking during the day. But then I had a series of disasters in my life. Uh, cancer. My son was diagnosed with cancer. My mother died. I, I had to have brain surgery and a, and a number of other things. I went, I'm a real estate guy. I got very, very close to bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of bad things happened at, at once. And as I came through that, I, I got to the point where I was drinking all the time. And somehow, miraculously, I had a good job. Um, I was doing a lot of driving. I was doing a lot of meetings. I was giving speeches, and I was doing it at some level of drunkenness, pretty much 24-7. Meetings, as in business meetings, not AA meetings. Not a (laughs) business meetings, yes. I was a businessman. Gotcha. and to and to an extent, because I, I'm a real estate developer, and and did some um, did some high level community stuff, um, n- not famous, but to an extent a a public figure. Mm-hmm. So I got uh, a DUI that was uh, publicized. It was my mugshot was on the news. Um, it was on uh, the. On, on, in a couple of newspapers, and so it was not a, a secret. It was a it was a public humiliation, and I, I was immediately I immediately lost my job, um, and my family. Well, I basically isolated myself to the point where I had no two people left: a very very close friend of mine named Rebecca, and my son. Michael, and they just said, this is it. We're not going to, you can't keep doing this. You're going to kill yourself. You're going to die. And um, that was on January the 6th. So I fought it. I, um, 
I tried to get into an intensive outpatient program. I thought maybe I could just do it through AA. Um, and they, my support system would not allow that. They set some pretty good boundaries, it sounds like. They set total, uh, you know, I came back, uh, I'd done all the research. Um, insurance was going to cover a 30-day intensive outpatient program. I was going to do that. And that door was just slammed in my face. Mm -hmm. my, um, the two of them said no. But they did the research independently. They found a very close friend of mine who is not an alcoholic by any stretch of the imagination, but his personal friends with Doug. Hmm. And they got my friend to call Doug, which is, if you, can, if you think about it, it's just an extraordinary act of kindness, of love. He called Doug, and Doug called me. And I said, I don't need that. And Doug said, you know how he is. Um, well, would you be willing to just come in and talk? Would, would you be willing to consider the possibility that it might make some sense? And I, and I thought, well, to get everybody off my back, I'll go in and I'll have an interview to prove to everybody that I'm not an alcoholic. That was my intent. Mm -hmm. I passed the test with flying colors. So I came in, did the assessment, Jordan and I, Jordan oh, did yeah. the assessment. And at the end of the 45-minute assessment, he said, well, you're a perfect candidate for our program. And I was like, surely you must be mistaken. You know, <laughs> let me, can we do this again? <laughs> right, I'm going to redo. So then I, was, then I resigned from my job on the 24th of January, 2019, after 49 years of drinking. Mm -hmm. And my son and my friend Rebecca dropped me off, literally brought me here, came in with me. Uh, when I went back for medical, they left. And boom, I was in Mar. Kicking and screaming, very angry, didn't need to be here. I was going to, you know, I would figured I'd do 15 days, and that would prove to everybody that I was able to not drink. And then I'd be on my merry way. Well, it didn't work out that way. I did not go to three quarters. I stayed for 99 days. And in the process of deciding whether to go to three quarters, I became aware of the value of not only developing an aftercare program, but executing it. And Dave Devitt said to me, lots of people make aftercare plans, but very few people stick by them. You know, you know how Dave is. Anybody can do an aftercare program, you know, if it's your ticket out of here, but very few people actually do them. And you know, I'm a, I am respond to a challenge. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I, I'll do this. I'll do this for a month or so. Well, here I am almost <laughs> two years later. I'm still doing it. Um, so the fact is that I was, I had um, congestive heart failure. Mm. I had uh, terrible gout in, in both legs. I could barely walk. I had AFib. My vision, I didn't even... I would never have thought that this had anything to do with alcoholism, but my vision had gotten very bad. Now I forget my glasses sometimes. My vision has dramatically improved. Mm -hmm. But I was, um, and I was driving around drunk all the time. Yeah. So I was somewhere between moments and weeks away from being dead, mm -hmm. literally. Um, but instead, I came into Mar. And, you know, they say that. They say you're either going to go to jail or the morgue, or rehab. Those are the three choices. 
And by the grace of God, and because I've, there were a few people left that still loved me enough to support me, um, I wound up in rehab as opposed to the other two. It's a miracle. And I would have gone to jail, but when the judge found out I was in Mar, he said, okay, well, we'll postpone your hearing, finish the program, and come back. If you finish the program, this will be your sentence. Uh, um, limited license, community service, no jail time. Or if you don't finish the program, if you wash out of the program, um, jail. Now, even drunk, I'm smart enough to make that decision. Mm -hmm. But I thought I could weasel out of it somehow. Anyway, that's, which is the way alcoholics think. But it started me, start, Mar started me in the right direction. Um, I did graduate. I got the T-shirt, still have it. Went back. The judge was true to his word. Um, I had a limited license. Um, I had to do 60 hours of community service. Um, but I did the community service. And I did my probation. I had a one-year probation. My probation is over. My license is fully reinstated. Mm -hmm. I was subject to random drug testing during my probation period for a year. And they would, um, I, I, at, at uh, 6 o'clock at night, I would learn that I had to have a drug test the following morning. And the, the, the place where they do the drug testing was a two-hour drive. So for a year... I lived with the knowledge that I might have a two-hour drive tomorrow morning, which makes it very difficult to make plans. Mm -hmm. um, but I did it. I, I, I not only went to all my drug tests, but passed all my drug tests. And after a year, probation was over, and now I'm on my own recognizance. Mm. But I was a hope 49 years as a hopeless alcoholic and two years, well, 22 months, <laughs> uh, in recovery. And um, and the, the breaking point was the DUI. If I hadn't gotten the DUI, I probably would have had a car accident mm -hmm. or, the, or a heart attack or a stroke. I was a very, very high-risk candidate for all of those. I had not been to a doctor in five years when I came into Mar. Now I'm, I go to the doctor, it seems like every day. Yeah. <laughs> but my health is good. I have a blood pressure cuff, you know. Mm -hmm taking responsibility for my own health. Mm. Um, the thing that is so, um, so difficult about recovery is that before you can begin to recover, you have to be truly hopeless. Yeah, I mean, and with that, that is the ultimate contradiction in recovery, that when all hope is gone, that's when you have a chance. Um, I used to say to my son, he'd say, well, Dad, you know, if you don't go up there by yourself. You're falling down all the time. Mm -hmm. I'd say, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be dead in 90 days anyway. What kind of a thing is that to say to your son? But I believed it. I mean, I, 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 and I knew without a doubt that I could never stop drinking. 
So it goes all the way back to the first step. I knew I was powerless over, over alcohol, but I believed that I could manage my life around it. I still believed that my life was not unmanageable. I would just manage to my alcohol consumption, mm -hmm. the, it, which is extremely complicated. You know, if you make a two-hour commitment and you know for a fact that you can't go two hours without a drink, then how do you – my solution was pouring a cl clear alcohol, gin, into water bottles. And people – nobody ever asked me why I was carrying two water bottles all the time. Mm -hmm. um, one of them was full of water. The other one was full of gin. And, and I thought I was fooling everybody. I wasn't fooling anybody. Um, but so you have to totally bottom out and not care. And I got to that place. Mm. And now I care deeply. Mm. I don't care about... It's not a, it's not a self-centered. It's, it's that, I, that I care what I say. And I care how I impact other people. And I care what sort of example I set. I, I, I think very, very carefully about the things that I can control, which is almost nothing. But there are some things that I can control. And then I just leave all the rest to God. Hmm. It is a very, very relaxing way to live. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing to it. Yeah. I, I'm curious to hear... Um, if there are other turning points for you, like that story you told with Doug was so great. Other moment, and I saw you talking with Matt before we came in here. It looks like you all have a close relationship. Or there are moments with other counselors or with your community members where this stuff that they were saying started to click into to place in a way for you that that oh, it hadn't before. Uh, how many do you need? <laughs> I'll, I'll, but I'll tell you a Matt story. Yeah. All right. When I had been at Mar about 40 days, I was still in um, phase one of halfway. And there was a day, it was a Saturday, when um, the guy who referred me to Mar, um, a guy by the name of John, very close friend of mine, uh, was retiring. And he was having a retirement party that was from 4.30 to 6.30. And then, and then at 7.00, Unrelated to one another, just coincidentally, my son was having an engagement party. He was going to ask his fiancée, Lori, to marry him, and if, assuming that she said yes. They were then going to have – he'd invited all of his friends, and uh, they were going to have a uh, uh, an engagement party. So I wanted a TL to leave Mart about 3.30, go to the 4.30 retirement party, give a little speech, then go to the – seven o'clock engagement party, give a little speech, and then come back tomorrow. So I wanted a TL that was gonna last, you know, four or five hours. And um, we had in our community meeting, um, Matt denied the, the TL. And I was enraged. I was, uh, this is my, the friend who got me to Mar, his, graduation party and his retirement party and my son's engagement party. I need those two functions couldn't go on without me. Those people needed to hear my speech. It was important to them that I be there <laughs> or so I thought. Mm -hmm. um, so Matt said, no, 
in front of, in a community meeting with with all my community. Did he give you a reason? He said, "You've been an alcoholic for forty nine years, and you're you've got forty days of sobriety, and you want me to grant you a TL to go to two bars." He said, are you insane? And I said, Matt, I guarantee, I will 100% guarantee you that I will not drink at either of those functions. And he stood up and all my community sitting around and looked at me and he said, he was really, really angry. And he said, you don't have a chance because you don't understand your disease. He said, I've got 21 years and I can't guarantee you that I won't drink. Later today, I can't guarantee you that I won't drink tomorrow. You're sitting there with 40 days and you're guaranteeing me that you can go to a bar and not drink. Am I hearing that right? And then he turned to my community and he said, you know, they all had to sign off on my TL request. They said, are you guys insane? You agree that we should send him out by himself to two bars this Saturday with 40 days of recovery? He's an alcoholic. And I was so angry. I was beside myself. How could he question my ability to control whether I would drink or not? How could he question that? By pointing out that I don't understand my disease, what do you mean? I've had this disease for 49 years. Of course I understand it. I was so angry, I decided never to speak to Matt again. Well, you just saw me hug him. <laughs> um, he was right. He was 100% right. And he needed to react that violently to have any chance of getting through to me. I mean, he could turn down the TL, but that wasn't therapy. That was just forcing me to follow a rule, and I might have gone anyway. Mm -hmm. I had a car. I had access to my own keys. I might have just said, screw Mar. They don't know what they're talking about. But he got through to me, and he got through to my community. What? what do, you, do you love this guy? Do you really want him to be in that situation? Um, he saved me. That, because I, prob I, I, I probably, out of sheer... Um, stubbornness would have gone to those things and not drank, but I would have come back in the middle of a of a heinous relapse mm. because I would have seen all that drinking and all that celebration, and and I would have been so proud of myself. I would have said to myself, "Well, if I can get through that without drinking, I'm good. I don't need bar anymore. I'll just go back to my life." You know, famous last words. Um. So Matt saved me, and he saved me more than once. I took his anger management course. I have a short temper, and he introduced me to something called the arc of decision. Um, and this is not visual, but essentially, when uh, something annoys you, and there is a straight line to a temper to a temper outburst, there's a much longer line called an arc, where you think about why you're reacting that way, you think about your feelings about it, you think about why you're reacting the way you are, you pray about it, and you come to the conclusion where you can respond in a calm and rational manner and still communicate your, your um, 
reaction, but in a way that the other person can consider your opinion, as opposed to snap, which is calling somebody names mm -hmm. and yelling at them and then feeling bad about it, right. which makes you want to drink. I've probably, the, the word arc of decision actually comes into my mind mm. when I'm about to lose my temper. And I go through that process. I learned that from Matt. Sure. Um, and, you know, Doug, of course, has, has been, Doug is still a very, very important person um, in my life. Will Atkins, um, I hope that running the place isn't, isn't distancing him too far from counseling because he has said things to me that the minute he said them, I knew he was right, and I and I took them to heart. And I have a couple of, of examples, but they're very personal, and I'm not uh, I'm not comfortable sharing them. But um, uh, but so in our community Monday nights Matt did it, and Wednesday nights Will, Wednesday afternoons Will did it. Two very very different approaches, both very very effective with me. Mm -hmm. um, got me to engage in my own recovery. Rick, I didn't really know Rick until I I took BBR with Rick. And, uh, and now mirroring, um, all, all of the counselors here. Uh, Todd uh, was responsible for signing off on my aftercare plan, which became the vehicle through which I extended my recovery beyond my time at Mar. Um, uh, everyone here has had a role in giving me tools, um, equipping me, with tools that allow me to remain sober one day at a time. Mm. Um, I can't imagine more caring, more loving uh, people uh, than the counselors at Mar. Um, I love every single one of them. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, and I mean, love them. <laughs> um, you know, Matt's a hugger. Others aren't quite. And I can't imagine hugging Devitt, my goodness. <laughs> but um, but I love him anyway. Yeah, right. You know. Right, yeah. Um, is can I make more jokes on Absolutely. a on a podcast? <laughs> Please, <laughs> they're welcome. <laughs> but um, and it, you know, it's been real. It was really cool while I was at Mar. Jordan had done my assessment, but he was moving into becoming a counselor. Um, Kristen was uh, in the on the admissions team and then started uh, uh, being the uh, working with Rick mm -hmm. um, in mirroring um, all of those people yeah have had an impact you know on my life uh, wh where else in the world could you encounter that many people who would actually make a difference in your in your life it's it's uncanny um, it's uncanny and it's literally, literally saved my life. I think I would be dead now. Wow. I'm, I'm pretty sure I would be dead now. You know, I haven't even, I took a fall that I didn't even remember till later, but it created a subdural hematoma and I needed emergency brain surgery. Um, and if I hadn't been with friends who forced me to go to the hospital, I probably would have died. I had a brain hemorrhage. Um, and that's a direct result of being drunk and falling down. Um, so any, any one of those things, I mean, the DUI that I got, I was humiliated, but I wasn't killed and I didn't kill anybody else. You know, that's a, that's a God thing. I mean, how did I not 
um, have some sort of an accident in that shape. And, and it's not like I got away with it once. I got away with it lots and lots of times. Um, you know, I, I said to Devitt one time that um, I was talking about the judge and Marr and the story that I told you that uh, Marr made a big difference in the sentencing. And Dave said, well, let me ask you this. Are you getting what you deserve? Mm -hmm. And I, I really had to think about that for a second because I'm an extremely entitled person. And I often have believed that the rules and the laws don't apply to me. You know, they're, they're for others. And I really thought about it, and I finally had to say to Dave, no, I am not getting what I deserve. I was out there callously risking other people's lives, and I'm getting a limited driving license um, and full choice whether I want to drink again, whether I want to drive drunk again. No, I'm not getting what I deserve. I should be put away if you think about it. Mm. Um, and these things, these comments that these people have made to me, some of them overwhelming, some of them just a side comment, they stick. They don't all stick, but some of them stick. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's one thing about these groups and, and about this environment. One, you never know when somebody is going to say something that's going to impact you. And more importantly, you never know when you're going to say something that will impact someone else. We, in this environment, we do service work accidentally. We share something about ourself, about our own journey, and it connects with someone else. They say, oh, I've never looked at it that way. And it, and it changes them. And it might have just been an offhand comment. But we, we positively impact each other through sharing, through talking, through processing. And so I've gotten where I want to do that in my life. Mm -hmm. I, I want to do that everywhere. Let's talk about this. You know, two heads are better than one. What, and, and the honesty. I've been a dishonest person. Doug said to me one time, are you an honest person? And I said, I, you know, he said, I, I said, I think I'm about 95% honest. And Doug said, 95% uh, honest is dishonest. <laughs> he said, you ever known anybody to be a little bit pregnant? 80% pregnant? 90% pregnant? 100% honesty, rigorous honesty, or not. N no honesty. And I thought about that, and I thought, that means that I've got to say things that I don't want to say. Mm. That means that I've got, when somebody asks me a question, I've got to tell the truth. It's, it's not easy, mm -hmm. but it works. And I learned all that here. Mm -hmm. And I learned it when I was 64 years old. I came in on the 25th of January, 2019, and my birthday was the February the 14th, two weeks later. So essentially I came in just before I turned 64. Um, and I've been drinking since I was 15. Wow. It's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. What would you say to somebody that's listening that's in their 60s or, you know, maybe even older? Like, oh, it's too long. I've been drinking too long. There's no way that I'll be able to get into recovery. It's just, it's not going to happen. So would you describe that person as 
hopeless. They, they're too old. They've been drinking too long. They, it just can't, they can't fix it. They're stuck with it for the rest of their life. I think that's a pretty good description of hopeless. Mm-hmm. Hopeless is the number one requirement for recovery. I would say to those people, unless you're planning to die tomorrow, would you like to live your life at peace? Would you like to have serenity in your life? Would you like to have love in your life? Or do you want to be completely miserable and alone for the rest of your life? Mm -hmm. Let's say it's only going to last two more years. Would you like that to be peaceful and loving? Or would you like that to be completely miserable and all alone? Mm -hmm. And if you think it might be nice to have some peace in your life and to have some love in your life, enroll in Mar. (laughs) You know, if you think there's no hope, you meet the criteria. (laughs) I love that. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Everything about recovery is counterintuitive. Pray for weakness. Yeah. What? You know, my Rebecca would write me letters and say and say, stay strong. And I'd write her back and say, say, accept your weakness. Yeah. And she's she'd write back and say, What are you talking about? <laughs> it's all counterintuitive. Yeah. You know, I mean and and Doug is the master. You know, Ted, would you be willing to consider accepting the possibility that you could possibly have an alcohol problem and need some help. So would I be willing to consider the possibility of accepting that I might be? Yeah, I can probably handle mm-hmm. that. And there's no commitment in that. But it's a baby step in mm-hmm. towards towards so just, you know, come on in and let one of the um counselors, one of the admissions people do an assessment. They'll tell you if you don't need more. They'll tell you if you do need more, but you can still choose not mm-hmm. to come tomorrow. Nobody's going to handcuff you or lasso you. Come on in. Mm-hmm. Have the interview. See what happens. It's free. Yeah. And if they think you need the program, then you can choose to enter the program. You can choose not to. There's no downside. Mm-hmm. Give it a shot. You know, if you if there's somebody who loves you, they'll they'll probably bring you. You know, um, and if you're too drunk to enter the program, we'll send you over here and sober you up for five or six days, and then we'll let you into the program. Mm-hmm. We, we've got this under control. Yeah, right. We've done this before. Right. Forty five years. Forty five mm-hmm. years. So just you know, are you hopeless? Are you miserable? Are you sitting alone on your couch? Is your best friend a bottle of gin? Mine was. Are you hiding things? Are you embarrassed to admit to people who care about you how much you drink? Well, guess what? They already know. I mean, and this is not a hypothetical. I have these conversations with people. It's the weirdest thing. You know, the, the, the upside of the fact that my DUI was public and my going into rehab was also considered to be newsworthy. Um, people know that I've been in recovery. And they don't know whether I'm drinking or not, but they see that I'm around. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. six feet under. So I get the damnedest. You know, people people say, hey, how would you like to go to lunch? Sure, I go to lunch. We're halfway through lunch, and all of a sudden they say, so tell me about tell me about this rehab thing. You know, I, I, I'm, how do I know whether I've got mm-hmm. a drinking problem or not? 
It's uncanny. And boom, right there, 12 step. Mm-hmm. You know, you just start ex- sharing your experience, strength, and hope. You don't say you need it or you don't need it. You say, let me tell you, what, let me tell you my story. Mm-hmm. And they want to hear your story. For you, um, you know, coming from some success and, you know, you shared some of the struggle for you was thinking like, you don't really know who I am, you know. So I imagine coming into a community where you're mixed in with a whole group of people and have a roommate, you know, that must have been pretty, a pretty uh, dramatic change. And, And if you could just kind of talk about your community experience here. Well... I'll start by tell, telling you a story. Okay. And Perfect. then I'll talk about it generically. Perfect. I am, um, um, in, my, in my business life, there are two things that I've been very involved in. One is building buildings, and the other is building roads. All right, I've just been involved in, in both of those things. And um, fairly shortly after I entered... Mar, Mar had to make an exception. I had a car, and our community only had one car, and there were nine of us. So Matt gave me permission to start being the other driver. And particularly when we would drive to the lake, very early on, I'm talking about when I'd been here one or two weeks, we'd be driving along, and I'd be saying, well, I built that building, and I was involved in widening this road and there's a bicycle path over there that goes through the national park that that I was responsible for, you know, whatever. And I'd been doing that for a couple of weeks. And the community got together and designated a spokesman, Mike, who's now one of my closest friends. And he said, Ted, I need, I need to sit down and talk to you. And um, I said, okay. And he said, listen, um, you know, you're always talking about your accomplishments and you did this and you did that. And... Um, we don't care <laughs> and we don't want to hear it and we're tired of hearing it. So just shut up. We don't, we're not going to listen to that stuff anymore. And I was like, wait, how can these people not appreciate these wonderful tales that I'm telling them and the process of doing that? And they need to understand how important I am. They didn't care. As a matter of fact, they were annoyed. And I didn't want to have a roommate. I did not. I I was, the last time I had lived with other men was when I was at a fraternity in college. Um, I haven't had a roommate since my freshman year in college. Um, I have my own bathroom, my own bedroom. um, And the thought of living in an apartment with four guys and having to go to the grocery store together, um, what I didn't know is that we were practicing for life. Uh, everything about Mar is practicing for when you're not at Mar anymore. How do you decide you've got $150 to spend at the grocery store? Everybody likes different food. So how do you spend that $150 in a way that everybody compromises, but everybody gets some of what they want? So, you know, I would say I was always pushing back against the rules. And I'd say, well, why can't we do a list? And just one guy can just go to the grocery store because we have a rule. That's always the answer. We have a rule. So we'd go together. My job was to push the cart because (laughs) my gout was so bad that I couldn't walk. I had to Mm. lean on the cart. But once I started being able to walk again, I still had to lean on the cart. But that 
four guys in a grocery store deciding how to spend their limited resources is a phenomenal lesson for life. And it was a lesson that I was 63 years old and I hadn't learned. I made the list and then I sent somebody else to the grocery store. And that's, that's the way my life worked. Um, not now. Now I'm in the grocery store and we're negotiating with each other and keeping track because, you know, if we got a gift card for 150, we can't afford 151. Mm-hmm. So we got to keep track. We got, might even have to put some stuff back. Living together, uh, sharing a bathroom, highs and lows. They, we, we did highs and lows every night that I was here. We'd so, all get together at 9 o'clock at night, sit down on the couch, and everybody would say the high point of their day and everybody would say the low point of their day. But what, it wasn't the highs and lows. It was the conversation after the highs and lows were over. We'd sit there and we'd talk about football or we'd talk about – but there, in, depending upon what, what part of my time at Mar it was, anywhere from 8 to as many as 12 men – sitting around on a couch with no place to go and nothing to do but to talk to each other and to help each other. When I was, when I was writing my life story, I just finally, um, I don't know why, I, I used the language in a funny way, but I finally became so exasperated that I said, this is just one huge blurtation. Well, my you know, they were all sitting around. They thought that was the funniest thing in the world. So they Tad, they wrote it up on the whiteboard. <laughs> this is just one huge flirtation. And then after a while, Ted came over and said, so what? You're obviously frustrated. What's going on? And I said, I, you know, I can't do this. And anyway, the details are not important. But he got me through it. Every single one of us had at least one crisis during that time. One of the, one of the guys had a very, very difficult family week, family day, mm-hmm. the, the impact group. Um, and he was devastated, in tears, wanting to leave Mar. And there were three of us, him and two other, myself and another guy, and we scrounged up cigars. And we handed porch furniture over the railing, and we sat in the grass there at the apartments and just smoked a mm-hmm. cigar with J- Jay and myself on either side of him. Mm-hmm. And we just talked about it. And we were breaking the rules because Jay was from another community. Mm. But we weren't punished for it. And what happened was as people came into the came into the apartment, they would see us sitting there and they'd go scrounge a cigar. And after a while there were about ten of us. And from several from all different all three communities, threes, fours, and fives. But we had this fantastic conversation, and there were nine of us supporting one guy, mm. the guy who needed it. And he will still talk about that night as turning him back. He was headed for relapse, and the community turned him back towards recovery. And we did that for each other all the time. And one of the things that I have done, one of the things that I have had to do, is that I continue to build a community of guys at Mar, guys that I know in my home group. I actually have two home groups. One is my home group. The other I call my home away from home group. Mm-hmm. 
and there are individuals that are in my phone, plus my sponsor, plus my two sponsees, and I'm I'm continuously building community because I need it. But and I went from age 22 to age 64, however long that is, without it, mm. without community, just on my own recognizance, my own strength, and I don't have that much strength. So I failed, failed miserably. I required rehab and community say that 70% of recovery happens in the apartments. And I think it's 90 because you have your brothers. There are men, lots of men, including Matt, that when I see them, I tell them that I love them. Mm -hmm. I've never done that before, not even with my brothers um, or my father. I do now. Mm. It's love. It is caring about each other, in some cases more than you care for about yourself which is the best kind of caring. So, yeah, community is everything at more, and it's everything in life. And uh, now that I've had it, I will never, never do without it again. Mm. I will never isolate. I will never be alone again because there are other people who I can help and who will help me right back. Mm. Thank you so much, Tad. This has been such a pleasure. It's been great getting to know you too. Well, this has been uh, this has been very, very helpful for me. Oh, great! To think these things through, I like I say, I've I've said a couple of things in here that I didn't know till I got in here, and it's I knew that would happen. That's it for this episode of Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. If you're struggling, and as you were listening to Tad's story, it struck a chord, or maybe gave you some hope please, we're asking you to reach out to our clinical assessment team. They'd be happy to talk to you about what's going on in your life or the life of your loved one. The conversation is completely free and completely confidential. Give us a call at 678-805-5131. That's 678-805-5131. Or you can go to our website at marinc.org, M-A-R-R-I-N-C.org. And in the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see a chat box. You can reach out that way. If picking up the phone just feels like it's a little bit too much right now, you can just send a quick chat and somebody will respond. Thanks again for joining us. We're already looking forward to next time.